like most of the dictators who followed in the wake of the 20th century's Big Three. Saddam Hussein paid close attention to the development of his personality cult. He purged like he was Joseph Stalin. He proliferated images of himself as if he were Mao Zedong. And he rewrote his own past in the manner of Adolf Hitler. But the malignant, narcissistic Saddam took each and every aspect of his cult to the extreme. Seemingly in an effort to disprove the truism that every lie contains some truth, Saddam Hussein cultivated the myth that he was a descendant of two of the most famous figures in Iraqi history, Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar II and Salah al-Din. Wanting to make his importance even more biblical in nature, he then went on and commissioned a Quran whose words were etched in his own blood in an attempt to confirm his claim that he was directly related to the Prophet Muhammad. During his life, posters of Saddam adorned every Iraqi bridge, public building, and storefront. Journalists worked around the clock to deify him. Movies were commissioned detailing his involvement in assassinations and purges. His son ran the National Broadcast Network, and everything was designed from the ground up to place Saddam in the most heroic light possible. Eighty-three palaces were built in his honor. Teams worked diligently in a failed attempt to figure out how to revive the Gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. A nearly 40-foot statue of him was erected for his 65th birthday. And as Saddam himself liked to point out, he was so beloved by his people that the government was able to report that every single one of the nation's 11.5 million eligible voters cast their ballot to re-elect him in 2003. The Iraqi people knew him by titles as the Anointed One and Glorious Leader. They saw him as a victorious general, despite the fact that his application to the military had been rejected when he was a youth. The medals that adorned his military uniform were all part of the carefully cultivated cult of Saddam. Bringing the truth to light was exceptionally dangerous. His intricate system of informants were so secret that no one in the government knew who they were. Amputation was both the standard punishment and public warning for those that contradicted the government's propaganda. The regularity with which the Iraqi people encountered limbless victims throughout the cradle of civilization reveals Saddam's true title, The Butcher of Baghdad. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is our second episode in a three-part series about the life and legacy of Iraq's most infamous dictator, Saddam Hussein, his hegemonic dreams. The world was deep into the Cold War when Saddam Hussein was busy building the apparatus necessary to turn Iraq into a totalitarian state. The worst political axiom of the era was that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Western powers were desperate to slow the global spread of Russian influence, and the Arab world revealed itself to be exceptionally effective at playing the United States against the Soviet Union. In 1972, Saddam publicly inched closer to the east when he signed a 15-year treaty of friendship and cooperation with the USSR. The US responded by covertly financing Kurdish rebels. They were joined in the effort by the western-backed Iranian regime of the Shah Pahlavi. The Kurds had initially viewed the deputy leader as someone whom they could work with. Within a year of the charm offensive, they were forced to admit otherwise. 
Iraq's would-be leader showed his true feelings towards the Kurds when he manipulated a visiting cleric into wearing what they claimed was a recorder. That recorder was detonated only after the holy man had reached the room of the leader of the Kurds. The ensuing blast severely wounded the leader, while also resulting in another 14 killed. The 1974 Second Iraqi-Kurdish War that followed resulted in an Iraqi victory, the forced displacement of the Kurds from their oil-rich land, and a severe break in the trust between Saddam and the West. But alliances changed quickly during the Cold War. In January 1979, Iran's Shah Pahlavi fled Iran in exile conceding the country to the Ayatollah Khomeini. The suddenness of the takeover stunned the world. Iran hadn't been viewed as a likely candidate for revolution. Their economy was in excellent shape, their people were relatively happy with their place in the world, and the nation hadn't embarked on any failing wars. Rather than the traditional triggers for a revolution, the Iranian revolution was motivated by religion. In the minds of the new caretakers of Iran, the West itself was viewed as the enemy, or Great Satan as Khomeini often put it. This was a new chapter in the Cold War, one emphasized by the Iranian revolutionary slogan of Neither East nor West, Islamic Republic. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran was taken over by supporters of the Ayatollah in November. For the next 444 days, 52 U.S. diplomats and citizens would remain as hostages of the Islamic Republic. America was incensed at the bold act as well as the unwillingness of the Middle Eastern nation to repent. Terms such as vengeance, blackmail, and anarchy were thrown around lightly on the nightly news. The regime was quickly labeled as terrorists, and Jimmy Carter's inability to resolve the situation directly contributed to his status as a one-term president. Suddenly, Iran became the greatest threat in the Middle East, and the U.S. pivoted back to Saddam Hussein, the man who had officially assumed the mantle of leadership six months after the Iranian Revolution. The U.S. was now willing to ignore its past criticism of Saddam for his treatment of the Kurds. No longer did they focus on his secret torture chambers. Rather, they talked about his desires to maintain Iraq as a secular nation. For the West, closer relations would also help to pull him out of the orbit of the USSR. The Iran-Iraq war that followed was a simple calculation of killing two birds with one stone. Hussein was no lover of the Ayatollah, who represented the concept of pan-Islamism, a system that directly contradicted Saddam's belief in pan-Arabism. Incursions regularly happened along the shared border, and soon the Ayatollah began openly calling for a similar religious revolution to occur in Iraq. It wasn't just conjecture. Iran pushed radio broadcasts across the border and had a hand in the attempted assassination of Iraq's deputy prime minister. Saddam's focus on rule through fear had left his regime exceptionally vulnerable. He had continued the British policy of oppressing the majority Shiite population in favor of the geographically concentrated Sunnis. His displacement of the Kurds furthermore meant that two-thirds of the country had legitimate reason to pursue a revolution. John F. Kennedy incorrectly spread the notion that the Chinese word for crisis is a combination of danger and opportunity. He used this information to remind Americans that in a crisis, one should always be aware of the danger, but recognize the opportunity of the moment. Prior to the Iranian Revolution, Iraq's economic state as well as its military were considered to be significantly more feeble 
than that of its neighbor. For comparison's sake, Iran's population and economy were three times larger and its military was twice as big. The Iranian revolution flipped the script in favor of Saddam's Iraq. Suddenly, it was Iran's economy that was in freefall, and the Ayatollah had just purged the military of its top leaders. There were now credible reports circulating of large-scale Iranian desertions. Some went so far as to describe the chaos as the total collapse of Iran. In my humble estimation, the greatest understanding of Saddam Hussein belongs to Israeli historian Amatsia Baram, who views him as a gambler. But not in a random sense. Saddam was the type of gambler who always liked to know that the odds were in his favor. An experienced gambler playing Texas Hold'em will be able to look at the cards after the flop, calculate the odds, and bet accordingly. But there are still elements that from time to time result in a crazy game of poker. Variables that can't be quantified, risks that have to be taken into account. In the poker game of life, however, the chips are your citizens. The fact that they are gambling with the lives of their citizens typically restrains world leaders and serves to enable peace rather than conflict. A side effect of malignant narcissism, however, is the inability to empathize with the suffering of others, particularly their own people. Thus, Saddam Hussein didn't need much urging to push all of his chips into the center of the table in an effort to immediately take advantage of the Iranian Revolution. He also happened to be urged on by America, who happened to be hanging around the table of the Middle East at this moment. America was committing a common Cold War calculation error in believing that the enemy of their enemy was their friend. The Yale Review of International Studies reveals to us America's thought process, writing that the prevailing priority became clear. Iraq was to win the war in order to defeat the anti-American, revolutionary, and religious zealotry that the Ayatollah Khomeini embodied. To the Reagan administration, an Iranian victory would further the Ayatollah's aims of exporting Islamic revolution throughout the Middle East and thus destabilize local monarchies, a threat to the Gulf oil that the U.S. depended on. Saddam officially utilized disagreements over the use of the Shat al-Arab River that borders the two nations and declared war on the Islamic Republic of Iran on September 22, 1980. The decision to invade the Middle East's largest Shiite nation was given the private go-ahead by the Sunni regime of Saudi Arabia. Like World War I, the military operations were only assumed to require just a splendid few months, during which time Iraq would surge into the already reeling Iran, seize its oil fields, and then sue for peace, allowing them to walk away with a sizable chunk of Iran's oil wealth. Saddam's effort was largely financed by loans from fellow Persian Gulf nations, including $14 billion from Kuwait. Saddam the gambler was so sure of victory that he was willing to put up other people's money. To avoid getting bogged down in this and the subsequent other wars that are on this episode's agenda, I'll simply summarize the course of the war and its result. Rather than shattering the Ayatollah's fragile coalition, Iranians rallied around their new leader and repulsed the initial invasion via human wave assaults. Mehdi Talati was 12 years old when he answered the Ayatollah's desperate call to defend his homeland. 
Talati, now a Western academic, describes what the war was like at the ground level, telling us that our biggest asset was our young volunteers who advanced in surprise human wave attacks, often straight into machine gun fire from the Iraqi trenches. You're getting shot at, killed, Talati tells us. Sometimes you cannot find your body. It's in pieces. And then you see that it's an unequal war. All you have is yourselves, and the other side have everything. Bunkers, artillery, air force. When you do not have weaponry, you have to break the enemy line with your body. Even the barbed wire. Sometimes we couldn't cut it, so we would throw ourselves upon it with our bodies so others could pass over us. Our casualties went up and up. Sometimes 70, 80, 90% of our units were destroyed. It seems that the only thing that the Iranians initially had on their side was belief. And that is belief with a capital B. They were fighting for their Ayatollah and spiritually through him, Allah. The concepts of martyrdom are as deeply rooted in Islam as they are in Christianity, and most interpretations of the Quran confirm that death in service to Islam is rewarded with eternal life. Khomeini regularly encouraged martyrdom throughout his rule. In 1978, he told his followers that our movement is but a fragile plant. It needs the blood of martyrs to help it grow into a towering tree. Statues were even erected in the hometowns of non-Muslims who martyred themselves during the Iraq War, including Murdad Navarand, who deliberately crashed his jet into a column of Iraqi tanks. The Ayatollah also praised the sacrifice of Mohammed Hosson Fahmed, a 13-year-old boy who strapped an explosive vest onto his body and ran beneath an Iraqi tank. Talati, the 15-year-old boy at this time, clearly exemplified this mindset. After all, he once offered to his commanders to clear a minefield by running through it. The almost immediate stalling of the invasion was fraught with danger for Saddam. Professor Chad Nelson, writing for the Middle East Institute, points out that time wasn't on the dictator's side. As geography blessed Iran with strategic depth, and the Zagros Mountains separating most of Iran from the Iraqi border while Iraq's population centers lay in the Mesopotamian plain making them more vulnerable to an Iranian counterattack. Chemical weapons, which had been created with the help and resources of West Germany, were deployed against the now-advancing Iranian forces. America and the rest of the West remained silent on the purposeful use of these weapons of mass destruction. It is believed that the utilization of the weapons began in earnest in 1983, at a period where the war had settled into one of attrition. The Iraqis were still winning the body count. In one month in 1984, the Iraqis reported 40,000 dead Iranians against only 9,000 of their own losses. Still, the lines of the war were not budging, and Iran was unwilling to enter into negotiations to bring the war to a close. Despite Iraq's growing adeptness in the use of chemical weapons, the war continued endlessly without hope. This splendid little war had become eerily similar to World War I, and the lines of engagement barely moved for the next five years. Only the body counts on each side budged, continuously rising. The two sides agreed to a United Nations ceasefire, and then peace on August 20, 1988. The Yale Review of International Studies sums up the war for us by stating that the severity of the conflict that followed cannot be understated. The Iran-Iraq War lasted eight long years, and an estimated 500,000 Iraqis and Iranians died. 
Battles transpired in the brutal fashion of World War I. Soldiers fired from trenches lined with barbed wire and human wave attacks with clashing bayonets resulted in massive casualties. Chemical weapons, too, were employed. Iraq made extensive use of mustard gas and possibly other nerve agents as weapons against Iranian forces, at times even on its own cities. It was a war without winners, and the conflict has been described as one of the bloodiest regional struggles of a hideously bloody century. According to historian Hala Fatah, the Iran-Iraq War was the longest and costliest war ever fought between two countries. Saddam's gamble had not only resulted in zero economic gains via the capturing of Iran's oil fields, it left his nation hopelessly buried by accumulated debt. Iranian bombing as well as simultaneous stealth Israeli assaults on Iraq's burgeoning nuclear weapons program meant that Saddam had to mobilize the economy for a post-war reconstruction. Coming off of a humiliating military defeat in a nation whose history was filled with military coup d'etats, he was in no position to cut social services or raise taxes on his people. Worse, no one in the international community was going to loan him the necessary funds, considering that he already had outsized multi-billion dollar debts to repay. Let's return for a moment to what Israeli historian Amzitzia Baram, who described Saddam as a gambler, said. Despite having just gambled and losing big on the Iran-Iraq war, he was about to double down and invade Kuwait. Baram explains that like all compulsive gamblers, he thinks that maybe he lost last time, but he's going to gain everything back this time, and even more. The war with Iran was meant to make Iraq the unquestioned hegemonic power of the Middle East. Through his actions, Saddam had chosen to side with the Americans in the Cold War. Somewhat surprisingly, the USSR had condemned his actions regarding Iran and remained neutral throughout the conflict. As the war turned against him, however, Saddam came to the realization that rather than an equal partner, he had unwittingly played the part of a pawn for the West. Ronald Reagan had decided to hedge his own bets. While the USA was providing logistical assistance to Iraq, Reagan was secretly negotiating arms deals with the Iranians in order to smooth hostage negotiations. The Iran-Contra affair nearly saw the 40th president impeached and greatly damaged his popularity at home. The scandal permanently soured Saddam on the West as he viewed the arming of Iran as a stab in the back. Like all narcissists, Saddam had the ability to convince himself of his own lies. Although he had initially invaded Iran for his own financial gain, he tried to sell the story to his financial backers that he had fought the war purely on their behalf. For that reason, he felt as though he didn't need to repay back the billions of dollars of debt that Iraq had become burdened with. The argument fell on deaf ears when he first tried it with Kuwait. This small Gulf nation had done more than just fund the war. Throughout the conflict, Kuwait had operated as Iraq's primary port and had suffered repeated bombings for their backing of Iraq. For this and other reasons, Kuwait unequivocally refused to forgive Saddam's debt. Simon Henriksen of the London School of Economics speaks on the issue reminding us that in 1979, before the war, Iraq was a net creditor to the world due to its large oil reserves and lack of external debt. 
15 years later, its government debt-to-GDP was over 1,000%, with few assets to speak of. Just as it had been when he rose to power, oil was the only tool that Saddam had at his disposal to raise enough funds to pay Iraq's debts. But Kuwait continually got in the way of those efforts. Behind the scenes, Saddam tried with all his diplomatic might to push OPEC into an artificial reduction of oil which would, in turn, skyrocket prices, allowing the Iraqi economy to rebound. Kuwait, however, refused to collude, and without their support, OPEC was unable to achieve consensus. To the contrary of Iraq's desires, the price of oil declined during this interwar period. Every dollar that the price declined, amounted to roughly $1 billion less dollars in Iraq's coffers. Henriksen puts it all in perspective, pointedly stating that Iraq emerged from the Iran-Iraq war a country in crisis. After 10 years of conflict, Iraqi external debt was a staggering $86 billion. In less than 10 years, the country had gone from being a net creditor to a net debtor, with a debt-to-GDP ratio of 278%. Debt service in 1989 was more than half of Iraqi's oil revenues. In 1990, Saddam, a compulsive gambler way over his head in debt with no way out, decided to take a shortcut regarding repayment. His logic ran along these lines. If Iraq owned Kuwait, then it would be in a position to forgive its own debt. There still needed to be a casus belli, or justification for attacking a sovereign nation. To this end, Iraq began to claim that Kuwait was conducting slant drilling operations, a process where one nation begins drilling near their border, but instead of drilling a vertical hole, they drill diagonally across the border in order to siphon off oil from their neighbor's reserves. This, rather than the outstanding debt, would serve as Iraq's public pretext for war. The invasion of Kuwait began at 2 o'clock in the morning on August 2nd. It potentially could have been prevented if the U.S. had made their stance on the conflict clear. Saddam, who had been serving as an asset for America for more than 30 years at this point in time, put out feelers regarding the war and received the following answer from a back channel with their American ambassador. The response was vague, with the ambassador stating that the U.S.'s opinion was to not have an opinion on Arab-Arab conflicts. This vague statement represented a horrific misreading of the situation on the ground. The U.S. was under the impression that Iraq was merely pressuring Kuwait to cancel the debt. Indeed, Kuwait agreed to decrease its production of oil two days before the invasion began. An intelligence failure meant that the Americans weren't privy to the fact that Saddam was intending to annex the entire nation. Kuwait also didn't seem to recognize the imminent danger coming from its neighbor's saber-rattling. Despite months of a military buildup on its border, the small kingdom was caught unaware when Saddam's forces moved in. The country collapsed in four days. One of the loudest oppositional voices to the invasion was Saudi Arabia's Osama bin Laden. The two men despised each other just as much as each individually hated the United States. Saudi Arabia watched the events unfold and became convinced that they were the next in line to be invaded by Iraq. It isn't hard to fathom how they came to this conclusion. 
In less than 10 years, Saddam had invaded two of his neighbors in order to steal their oil fields. Additionally, Saudi Arabia had financed the second largest amount of loans for the Iran War. Bin Laden, who was arriving home with the momentum that comes from waging a victorious war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, began to loudly rally the kingdom against Saddam. He promised 100,000 Mujahideen war-hardened Afghan holy warriors to be used to finish off the butcher of Baghdad once and for all. His offer was refused. Saudi Arabia had decided to turn to the United States of America for their safety and salvation. This event was one of the most significant in what was a long list of bin Laden's grievances towards the West. He told anyone that would listen that it was a mistake to invite the Americans into the Holy Land, for in his own estimation they would never leave. When it became clear that his violent rhetoric had gone too far, the kingdom tried to silence bin Laden permanently but he was tipped off by a government insider and fled to Sudan before the hit could be completed. An American war buildup began in earnest for the first time since their forces had departed in haste from Vietnam in 1973. Six years after U.S. forces had arrived in Saudi Arabia, bin Laden, now returned to Afghanistan, would issue his declaration of war against the Americans who occupy the land of the two holy mosques. His grievance list put Desert Storm front and center. The declaration reads in part that Muslims burn with anger at America. For its own good, America should leave Saudi Arabia. There is no more important duty than pushing the American enemy out of the Holy Land. The presence of the USA Crusader forces on land, sea, and air of the states of the Islamic Gulf is the greatest danger threatening the largest oil reserve in the world. The existence of these forces in the area will provoke the people of the country and induces aggression on their religion, feelings, and prides and pushes them to take up armed struggle against the invaders occupying the land. Due to the imbalance of power between our armed forces and the enemy forces, a suitable means of fighting must be adopted, i.e. using fast-moving, light forces that work under complete secrecy. In other words, to initiate a guerrilla war where the sons of the nation and not the military forces take part in it. End quote. Bin Laden had warned of grave abuses that would come from American forces setting foot on the soil of the home of Mecca. The military is not perfect and has its own system of justice set up to deal with wayward soldiers. Historically, U.S. soldiers stationed overseas have been known to commit crimes. But by all accounts, the troops were on their best behavior in 1990. Still, our concept of best behavior might not translate perfectly to other cultures. The vast majority of the crimes that bin Laden would point to over the next 20 years weren't things that Americans would consider for criminal referral. Rather, the supposed crimes are better classified under the general idea of cultural corruption. Actions such as women unveiled moving around the military bases, including many exercising in the desert wearing just their sports bras as tops. U.S. soldiers would interact with local children, sometimes letting them listen to American music or passing off cigarettes or adult magazines. As in every theater of war, 99% of the troops are going to handle their job as professionally as possible. But we all have those days where we let something slip that we know we probably shouldn't have. Despite bin Laden's ranting, there wasn't an immediate increase in anti-Americanism or anti-Western thought in the immediate shadow of the defensive buildup of forces. 
While the number of international terrorist attacks in the Middle East did increase from 65 in 1990 to 79 in 1991, most could be explained by a significant increase of violence in Lebanon. Nations like Egypt, which supported the anti-Iraq coalition, expected an increase in terrorism to occur, but had none to deal with during the first war of the Americans' arrival. In fact, the vast majority of the Middle East supported Desert Shield and what would later become known as Desert Storm. Thirty-six nations joined the coalition, including 12 nations whose majority populations were Islamic. Even Afghanistan joined the coalition with 300 Mujahideen soldiers. Saddam, a believer in pan-Arabism, had managed to successfully unite the Arab world against himself. President George H.W. Bush, a former CIA director, addressed both chambers of Congress on September 11, 1990. He warned that, quote, vital issues of principle are at stake. Saddam Hussein is literally trying to wipe a country off the face of the earth. We do not exaggerate, nor do we exaggerate when we say Saddam Hussein will fail. Vital economic interests are at risk as well. Iraq itself controls some 10% of the world's proven oil reserves. Iraq plus Kuwait controls twice that. An Iraq permitted to swallow Kuwait would have the economic and military power as well as the arrogance to intimidate and coerce its neighbors. Neighbors who control the lion's share of the world's remaining oil reserves. We cannot permit a resource so vital to be dominated by one so ruthless. The president proclaimed before concluding with the words, and we won't permit it. Once the shield was set up for Saudi Arabia, it was time to extract Iraq from Kuwait. Sanctions were immediately levied and the United Nations passed a measure on November 29, 1990 that gave Saddam an ultimatum to withdraw all of his forces from Kuwait by January 15, 1991. I was 10 years old at the time of the invasion and can recall the build-up to war as a huge deal. After Vietnam, the United States had done everything that it could to avoid a full-scale war. While the Cold War had been filled with proxy fights, assassinations, and meddling of the worst kind, we had refused to openly commit troops. Likewise, we were being told that Saddam Hussein controlled one of the most powerful armies in the world. His elite special forces, the Republican Guard, were made out to be some sort of elite Sith army that a 10-year-old could only understand by placing it in the context of Star Wars. I still remember saving each inset from my dad's Time magazines, which showed the difference in military equipment between the coalition forces and Iraq's. Two days after the UN ultimatum had passed, those forces would be tested against each other. January 17, 1991 began Operation Desert Storm, and for the first six weeks, the coalition forces waged the largest air campaign since the Vietnam War. 18,000 air deployment missions were carried out, including more than 116,000 air sorties, which dropped 88,500 tons of bombs. Iraq had no response to the precision bombing runs led by the American Air Force. This was the first war where GPS was heavily utilized, with U.S. Army Rangers occasionally biking to locations in order to capture the coordinates for their smart bombs. Iraq, on the other hand, had no such thing as a smart bomb. They attempted to split the Arab members of the coalition from their Western allies by regularly launching Scud missiles towards Israel. The thought was that Islamic states would rather pull out of the war effort 
than to be on the same side as Israel. At the behest of the U.S., Israel remained on the sidelines. But that isn't to say that they weren't affected. The LA Times reported that Israel had been struck by more than 30 Scud missiles, resulting in four fatalities. Half of the population of Tel Aviv had to leave their homes, closing their schools and offices. In the Times' words, Israel was traumatized and terrorized. Still, in the analysis provided, it is revealed that Hussein's grand miscalculation in Kuwait and his resulting inability to launch massive barrages of missiles on Israel have kept the Israeli nuclear bomb under wraps. Ironically, the heavy punishment Hussein has invited on himself by invading Kuwait has spared him the even heavier punishment that Israel may have visited on Iraq. This war has thus spared both Israel and Iraq the unpredictable consequences of venturing dangerously close to the nuclear brink. Israel was saved from having to face the dilemma of nuclear use, while Baghdad was saved from being the victim. Israel didn't have to wait long for the war to be over. After establishing air superiority, coalition forces moved in and finished off the remaining Iraq forces in under 100 hours. The elite forces of Saddam had turned out to be a myth. Rather than encountering super-soldiers, the U.S. forces had to deal with the enemy utilizing children as human shields. Then later, they had to confront the horror of engaging other children who had been conscripted into the Iraqi security forces. Saddam had a long history of violating international human rights doctrines regarding the enslavement and creation of brigades of child soldiers. A ceasefire was called for February 28th, the day after coalition forces created a corridor that history now refers to as the Highway of Death. Highway 80 is a six-lane highway that connects Kuwait to Iraq. The Iraqi forces were in full-scale retreat when the U.S. Marine Corps took out the front of a massive caravan. Blocked from exiting, Marine, Navy, and Ranger forces joined in on destroying more than 300 vehicles along what is now known as the Mile of Death. The military operations that led to the liberation of Kuwait were so successful that many politicians encouraged the U.S. to push past its original mandate in order to invade and depose Saddam Hussein once and for all. President Bush, however, showed restraint. In 1998, the former president penned a Time magazine article with Brent Scowcroft, justifying his decision. The article begins... While we hoped that a popular revolt or coup would topple Saddam, neither the U.S. nor the countries of the region wished to see the breakup of the Iraqi state. We were concerned about the long-term balance of power at the head of the Gulf. Trying to eliminate Saddam, extending the ground war into an occupation of Iraq, would have violated our guideline about not changing objectives in midstream engaging in mission creep, and would have incurred incalculable human and political costs. Apprehending him was probably impossible, they concluded. In 2018, USA Today looked back at this decision to halt the coalition advance at the Kuwaiti border. Paul Brandis, one of their columnists, wrote, Sometimes leaders should be judged not so much on what they do, but what they do not do. Like the time when George H.W. Bush and Dick Cheney decided against invading Iraq and toppling Saddam Hussein. Bush and Cheney analyzed the situation carefully and determined that it wasn't worth the casualties and that America might get bogged down. Besides, 
Who knows what might have happened from the Pandora's box that an invasion and occupation of Iraq would pry open. Cheney made the case for restraint himself, saying, It's just as important for a president to know when to commit U.S. forces to combat. It's also important to know when not to commit U.S. forces to combat. I think for us to get American military personnel involved in a civil war inside Iraq would literally be a quagmire. Instead, the U.S. placed sanctions on Iraq which were designed to prevent Saddam Hussein from ever again threatening a neighbor. Of particular importance was their design to halt Saddam's weapons of mass destruction program. We know for a fact that Iraq utilized chemical weapons in their war with Iran. Many believe that he did so again during the Gulf War. 200,000, or one out of every three troops deployed, suffer from what is now referred to as Gulf War Syndrome. The undeterminable disease results in chronic suffering from a variety of symptoms, such as fatigue, headaches, joint pain, indigestion, insomnia, dizziness, respiratory disorders, and memory problems. Chemical weapons are one possible culprit for the syndrome. The exhaust fumes from oil well fires, which were set as Saddam's orders by Iraqis retreating from Kuwait, is another possible explanation for the suffering of America's troops. Still, there are plenty who suspect that the Army's own burn pits may have caused the harm. The lack of clarity regarding the cause of Gulf War Syndrome has made the process of claiming benefits extremely frustrating for veterans of the war. The sanctions levied against Iraq had far-reaching consequences for the inheritors of Mesopotamia. Our understanding of sanctions has thankfully improved after the damage that they caused in Iraq, which the Middle East Research and Information Project calls the worst humanitarian catastrophe ever imposed in the name of global governance. Saddam, with his complete lack of sympathy for his own people, dodged the worst effects of the ongoing continuous economic warfare against Iraq. He remained in his palaces while individual children died of complications caused by economically induced famine and an inability to access modern Western medicine. Bin Laden included the harshness of the sanctions levied against Iraq as part of his 1998 fatwa seeking holy war against the United States claiming that the policy was responsible for the deaths of one million Iraqi citizens. The 1995 Oil for Food Amendment was an attempt to alleviate some of the damage that the sanctions had on Iraq, but it only further enabled Saddam to maintain a lofty lifestyle at the expense of his own people. Under the program, the United Nations would look at and, where appropriate, approve of Iraqi oil sales. The profits from these sales would then be assigned to designate accounts which were to be used to provide for the basic needs of the people. The program was horrifically mismanaged from the start. Saddam Hussein was mistakenly given the right to determine who the purchasers of the oil were, as well as which vendors were to be used for supplying Iraq with the basic goods in return. Saddam's place on top of the program incentivized bribery and resulted in the butcher of Baghdad skimming up to $11 billion off of the top of the programs. The severity of the sanctions was justified by the hope that they would encourage an uprising for change. Those uprisings occurred, but were never materially supported enough to succeed. In 1991, rebellions by Kurds and Shiites, the two most oppressed groups in Saddam's Iraq, resulted in somewhere between 100,000 and 180,000 deaths. 
intermittent missile strikes in the 90s swatted Saddam's hand, but there was little effort in bringing about his removal from office. In 2002, the European Union pushed the Commission for Human Rights to sign off on the verdict that a decade of sanctions had resulted in absolutely no improvement regarding human rights in Iraq. Furthermore, the statement laid systematic, widespread, and grave violations of international humanitarian law at the feet of Saddam Hussein. This conclusion was enough for George W. Bush, the presidential son of George H. W. Bush, to pursue the Second Persian Gulf War in 2003. Bush began the war on terror after Osama bin Laden had orchestrated the 9-11 attacks, which killed more than 3,000 Americans. Within hours, the security community firmly stated their conclusion that bin Laden had orchestrated the attacks from his base in Afghanistan. From the moment that the president was made aware of the assault, which happened to be while he was reading a book to elementary students in Florida, Bush's focus seemed to be locked in on finishing the work in Iraq that his father had started. Bruce Riddell was on the staff of the National Security Council on 9-11. Two days after the attack, he wrote contemporaneous notes regarding a phone call with British Prime Minister Tony Blair. The Prime Minister was dismayed and called Riddell for clarification. During the phone call, President Bush had gleefully volunteered that he planned to hit Iraq soon. A week after the attack, the president met the Saudi ambassador to begin planning for Desert Storm II. Rydell made note that the president clearly thinks Iraq must be behind this. The bombs began falling over Baghdad during the night of March 21, 2003, in an operation that was sickingly named Shock and Awe. George W. Bush would go on to finish the work of his father by invading Mesopotamia, capturing Saddam Hussein, and serving as observer to his execution on December 30, 2006. We'll examine those events, plus Saddam's legacy, in our next episode. <laughs>